Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Roger Smith for When Humanists Attack. And these programs are a project of a non-profit religious organization under the name The Humanist Being, registered in the state of Vermont. And on this installment of When Humanists Attack, I'm very excited to have as our guest, H.J. Evans. Uh, he introduced himself to me as Lee Evans. He is a journalist and father of two, lives uh, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's the author of the book, Leaving the Tower, Why Jehovah's Witnesses Are Wrong About Just About Everything. He's a former JW. He didn't include a great deal of his own story in the book. He says his story is pretty typical among the witnesses growing up within faith and within the organization, entering adulthood among them to the point of marrying and becoming a father, and only then starting to be bothered by questions about it all, questions and questioning that ultimately led him to withdraw from the faith at great cost to the life he had built, questioning that clearly also motivated the writing of this book. In the introduction to Leaving the Tower, he says, this isn't an autobiography. This book is meant to show you that you're not crazy, that you're not alone. You're right to question things that you've been taught. And what's more, you're on the right track. Keep it up. You know, this book, he says, is supposed to make you question things that you thought were true. Above all, it's supposed to make you realize one important, vital truth that we could all stand to learn. You can always be wrong. And being wrong isn't bad. Being wrong is the first step to growth. Now, as a humanist, I say a great big amen to that. I say whoopee <laughs> to that, you know, from the standpoint of the humanist values of critical thinking and ethical development. Mr. Evans, my hat is off to you. You have achieved something really extraordinary. Being wrong is the first step to growth. <laughs> Be wrong and, and humble enough to admit it, right? To stand for truth. So welcome, H.J. Evans. Let's talk about it all. Let's let's start early on, if you will. I mean, I Absolutely. imagine. First of all, first of all, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's it's a delight. Now, your early years, I'm thinking, must, from the present standpoint, feel to you like a time of intense indoctrination. Yeah. How did it work? My mother started bringing us into the Jehovah's Witnesses right around the time I was maybe like one or two or three years old. She she actually got baptized as a Jehovah Witness, which is a when you formally join the faith um, when I was three years old. Three so years. I don't I don't remember a life before the Witnesses. I know that shortly after that, my mom and dad split up because my mom had made it clear that she wasn't interested in my dad if he didn't want to be a witness. And my dad understood that he wasn't welcome amongst the witnesses. He tried, but they didn't want him. They only wanted my mm. mom. Mm. So from a very young age, that was all I was around all I was around. Um, so wait, he he exited the scene? Did he keep up a relationship with you? 
Um, he did his best. He really tried. He's a good man. He really tried to 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 stay in the picture. But one of the things that happens is witnesses will try and separate families. So they'll try and say, look, this person is not one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So you shouldn't be spending any time with them. You shouldn't be around them. You shouldn't be doing stuff with them. Don't waste your time with that person. So that's kind of what happened. Mixed marriages can't survive, I imagine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened with my dad is that they kind of told, they kind of told me, you know, don't spend time with your dad. Don't, don't want to spend time with your dad. And he, to his credit, stuck in there. You know, he, he just sort of waited, bided his time, you know, did what he could. Um, a lot of the best lessons in my life that I learned, I learned from him. So I'm always grateful that he, that he did that. But it was a, you know, it was a really sort of tricky thing. And that happens with a lot of people who grow up as witnesses, that their families get separated somehow, and they don't know anything else but how to be one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. My earliest mm -hmm. memories are of sitting in the meetings and the meetings that the way that witnesses will do these meetings, they're religious sort of church gatherings, but they would have three of them a week. Two of them would be for about two hours. And mm -hmm. one of them would be for one hour. Mm -hmm. Now imagine you're a three, four, five-year-old little boy, right. you're antsy, a lot. But you've been this... baptized, so that so you belong to them. You know? Now I wasn't baptized yet. You, yeah. they don't, they they make a big show of not baptizing children. They're very proud of themselves that they don't baptize babies. Mm -hmm. And I'll get, we'll circle back to that okay. <laughs> um, because it's, it's important to note what baptism like means to them. Those are some of my earliest memories is just sitting there. And, and one of the things that ends up happening is that kids who misbehave, especially in the eighties and nineties, will get dragged into the back and hit a lot. Yes. Spanks. You, you use the phrase in your book, the spanking room. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Yep, that, that there's actually a book out there from a former Jehovah Witness called The Spanking Room. And I saw that and I'm like, that is apropos because that is right. exactly what that room was. That there was always a place where they would take the kids and just my younger, my older brother, excuse me, uh, was only associating with the witnesses for about six months before uh, my mom and my dad separated. And then he went with my dad and uh, he still clearly remembers the spanking room like yeah. 40 years later he remembers the spankings that he got at jehovah's witnesses when you're very small they tell you look this is important you need to pay attention or else you will die mm. because their belief system is based on armageddon will come at any moment any second Armageddon is going to come. And if you are not doing everything that you can, you will die. Yeah. So, I guess that there's no there's no protecting the 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 babies. Yeah, there's no protecting from that concept. Yeah. Because they what they do is they mix the children in with the adults during meetings. Mm -hmm. So that the same stuff that they're considering that has pictures of you know, the destruction of the world and of meteors and stones hitting people and killing them is the same stuff you see as a kid. So they're exposing kids to this really apocalyptic imagery very young. And yeah, kind of you spoke about the book of Bible stories. The Witnesses made a kind of propagandist book called Mankind's Search for God. The one book 
that just about every witness child of a certain age remembers, where they explained why every single religion is wrong except them. And one of the things that they did in the very beginning of the book is a picture of an Aztec sacrifice where they rip the heart out of uh, of a person who is like sliced open and rivers of blood coming out. This is real. I would, I, I it is, it like, I remember paging through it and just paging through, oh, this is a cool new book. And then I paged through it and I almost like threw up. It's that graphic. And bear in mind, I'm like nine years old. The most graphic thing to this thing that I'd ever seen was like G.I. Joe. And suddenly I'm being greeted with this very horrifying imagery. And they do Iron this. With a, yes. And they do this with a lot of kids because they want kids to be scared. They want them to understand the stakes that this is what happens. This is what will happen to you. If you leave, think of how the, the terror, you know, woo, do you really want to be scared like this? So, I assumed, yep, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I didn't pay attention in school. I didn't care about school because school is not important. I didn't have friends who were, you know, kids who were for school friends. I kind of made sure to keep them at arm's length. So that- are just, just part of the corrupting outside world. Yeah. And that's not the, it wasn't the most important thing. If you're a witness, mm -hmm. the most important thing is, you know, witness stuff. But I found a lot of comfort in the witnesses because- I was a very good public speaker. Um, hmm. Since the age of six, I was doing public speaking. And uh -huh. like in, in front of like, sometimes in front of like a hundred people, I did one in front of like, you know, like 1200 people when I was in my early, my, my late teens, you know, mm. like it was just, and it was a rush and it was fun. And you couldn't do the public speaking unless you did all the other stuff. Were you preaching? Yeah, basically, you would. You, they would have. They would assign you like a Bible book, or a little Bible reading, or something like that. Like for example, they would say, "Okay, this week's reading," and this is everybody in the country, everybody in the world who was a Jehovah Witness would be assigned the same Bible topic. So they'd be like, "Okay." uniformity you're reading this week is matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 me as a little seven or eight year old would get up there do a little introduction about the reading then read a little bit and then do a kind of conclusion of you know yes so this is what we get out of the reading and then it was a five minute long thing and then i'd get down and everybody you know clap and i was always so proud of myself and everybody at that point would be like oh you did such a good job good job good job oh, and yeah. for a kid who was being hit with a lot of sticks, that was the carrot. Hmm. You know, that, mm -hmm. that was the thing that kept me kind of, that was the thing that kept me going. Were so, you also uh, doing the sort of door-to-door, -door, like retail religion stuff? No, Absolutely, yes. And I, some kids hated it. I loved it. I about loved it. Yeah, I loved going door-to-door -door because you get to meet so many different people and you would get to like, you'd get to like take walks with people and, you know, you'd be walking around the block, knocking on every door and hi, my name is Lee. We're talking about blah, 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 you know, and it was, it was fun because you get to meet, like, I, I love people and I love getting to know them. So I enjoyed it. Now, some witness kids, most witness kids, I was a weird one. Most witness kids hated going door to door. 
mm-hmm. for obvious reasons because going door to door stinks, man. Um, <laughs> you know, like I know one person who they were canvassing for a political candidate and they were doing it for about like two doors and then they had a panic attack and they couldn't do it anymore because it reminded them too much of what it was like preaching door to door. You know, like that's it, that it really affects a lot of people and they make kids do it very young. I was five years old the first time I did a little presentation at the door. Quick story, one time doing a presentation and uh, I'm presenting my little magazines and I may be 11 years old or so. Then all of a sudden I feel a little wet thud on my shoulder and I look over and a bird had taken a dump (laughs) on my shoulder. And I'm like, so anyways, and I continued doing my little presentation. (laughs) So, you know, like that sort of weird stuff, you know, that those are the sort of weird things that would happen, you know. Perturbed. I would right. say you were ready for Armageddon if you dealt with that. You know. Exactly. If you've had a bird take a dump on your shoulder, you can handle pretty much anything. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so it sounds like you're saying that at that age, you know, you weren't racked by uh, cognitive dissonance or, nope. you know, you were with the program, I suppose. Yeah. And the reason why I liked it is because they had a veneer of scientific belief. We've done the research and here's the results of our research. And that appealed to me because for me, I was like, yeah, I was a very logical thinker. And I was like, well, if you can logically prove something, it must be true (laughs) without knowing that the majority of the information I was being fed was incorrect yeah and they also kind of set it up so that they go look we are the only ones that provide true information and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying when you're a very small child you don't have a way of knowing whether or not this is true you don't have a way of knowing whether or not somebody's feeding you a line that's kind of how they catch a lot of kids and then by the time that they start hitting 18 19 20 and their brains start getting more formed, it's too late. They're already trapped. I got baptized when I was 13, 12 years old. I was 12 years old. And when you get baptized, that is when you formally join the church. From that point on, if you decide to leave or get kicked out, you will be shunned. That's why they make a big deal of, we don't baptize kids because they're comparing their baptism to like a Catholic or Lutheran baptism or any other type of church. Whereas those baptisms are more like the first rite. It's just, oh yeah, God loves you. Here you go. Here's a little, here, I'll splash some water on your face. Whereas this is like, this is like you signing a lifelong contract Mm -hmm. at the age of 12, you know, a lifelong contract of servitude. Right. Um, The consequences are, are front loaded. You know, exactly, exactly. And you have no way of knowing this when you're very small. So as you get a little bit older, that's when doubts start sort of creeping in. That's when you start maybe starting to question things. What happened is as I got older, I started, you know, I I started feeling a little bit more miserable about the whole thing. I got married very young. I was maybe 22. And the way the witnesses handle marriage is it's not necessarily an arranged marriage, but it kind of is. Because there's so few people who are like, there's so few single people in the witnesses, Mm -hmm. especially single men. So what they'll Mm -hmm. do is they'll go, hey, 
you're a single man. There's a single sister. I think the two of you should date. And after a while, you're like, yeah, we should date. Except with dating amongst the witnesses, if you date somebody, if you don't marry them, you're kind of an a-hole. <laughs> so um, what ends up, oh. and you and you can get you can get um, you know you can get reproved for dating somebody be, without marrying them because you know you weren't taking it seriously and reproved is where they start kind of shaking their finger at you and maybe taking away some of your privileges in the congregation. So you're kind mm-hmm. of locked into somebody when, when frankly, dating is just supposed to get to know whether or not you can stand to see this person's face every morning. Or, you know, sometimes it's not even for that. It's just for fun. But they, they make everything a life or death matter. So I get married very young and it was miserable. We, yeah. we, we, we loved each other, but we didn't like each other. And I mean, it, do, it does remind me of how you hear about arranged marriages, say, in the Asian cultures where there is a strong and religiously uh, centered kind of community and there is a, uh, a de-emphasis of uh, individualism. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, it sits uncomfortably with the individualistic culture of the U.S., but I guess that just is reflected in how much you shunned outsiders and kept your, kept the youth away from, you know, the yeah. other youth. Yeah, there was, there's, you know, people that I was, you know, obviously interested in as a teenager or as a young adult, but I wasn't allowed to date them. If you yeah. date outside the witnesses, that gets all your privileges stripped away. And then they start, they don't shun you yet, but they're basically saying you're at the door. You know, you got to be careful, step back. And if you don't listen... And you keep on going with that, then it kind of shows that you don't care to hear what the elders or the people who are in charge have to say. You used a theory toward the end of your book of uh, be- behavioral control, information mm-hmm. control, thought control, and emotional Emotion. control. That and that is yeah, credited really. to that's credited to Stephen Hassan. He's on uh, Twitter. His mm-hmm. his handle is at Cult Expert. Um, so I recommend right, that a way of check- describing how cults work. Exactly. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yep. so, you know, I mean, what kinds of things made the the notion that there is this totalitarian system operating in your life, you know, start to dawn on you? Or, or... I'm married and it looks on the outside like a perfectly idyllic marriage. I mean, we bought a house with a literally a white picket fence. Right. We had a son and everything looked good. But on the inside, it was miserable. We, we hated each other. I ended up a lot of times being a mentor to the youth because they seemed to like me and I felt more comfortable around them than around some of the older people who were very buttoned down. I felt right. a lot more comfortable. One time I happened to be with a couple of them. We're just going to the store to get some ice cream for a thing. And one of them asks me the question. They're like, hey, how come the... Bible says that humanity is only 6,000 years old, Mm. but some scientific things say that humanity is hundreds of thousands of years old. I didn't have a good answer. And I was like, well, they're wrong. You know, Mm. I didn't have a good answer. And I was like, you know, I need to find a better answer for that for my own sake. And I started looking into carbon dating. And that's when I realized carbon dating is pretty airtight. They've been over and over and over this. They, they haven't stopped checking this out for a very long time. And then I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. Does that mean that evolution is is really happened? And it's like, 
oh no, oh no, oh no. I started going, well, now what do I do with this? And I started realizing like my son, I love my son. You know, I've got a son and a daughter and my son came first and I loved him so much. Uh, the story I always tell him of is about when he was born, his mother couldn't get to him right away. So he's on a warming table, just screaming his head off. And so I walked over to him and I said, hey, bud. And he stopped crying and we just locked eyes and just stared at each other. Mm -hmm. And like, since then we've been inseparable. <laughs> and I would look at this little boy and I'd be like, what if one day he realizes he's gay? Because the witnesses amongst the witnesses, that is a no-no. Mm -hmm. I would have to shun him. I'd have to kick him out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I couldn't do that to him. I mm -hmm. love this child too much. And then I'm like, oh, then that means I'm not a very good witness. Oh no. You know, it's another bit of the wall uh -huh. starts to crumble. Parenting itself just recentered your notions. Yeah, it kind of like... changes. It changes your your worldview because suddenly yeah. you're not just thinking about you know me and my own beliefs. You're thinking about me and how am I going to raise this little life that is depending on me for the rest of its life? How can I force my child to an accept an ideology that I do not accept? That's just dishonest. It's dishonest and rude to do that to a child. Finally, the, the dam fully burst when I went to Wikipedia and looked up Jehovah's Witnesses and then scroll down to controversies. And then all of a sudden it was like, I didn't know about all of these things. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this. I didn't know that. I didn't know this. I didn't know that. And then after that, it's like, well, I can't hold it back any longer. You know, I can't pretend that this is something that I want to do. But I still really tried to pretend that it was something I wanted to do. Yeah. Because I didn't want to lose my family, my friends. I didn't want to lose all of it. Right around that time, though, there was somebody else who I refer to as my exit buddy that he was kind of going through the same stuff that he's like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't really believe any of this stuff anymore, man. And I, I don't know. And we were kind of circling each other warily because, you know, I read a book called Escape from Camp 17 about North Korea. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy who escaped from the prison camp. And the one thing that he kept talking about is you were always afraid that someone else was going to rat you out. And that's exactly how it felt amongst the witnesses that you were always afraid someone was going to rat you out. As time goes by, you know, we start realizing that, yeah, this is real. We're real, both really having these thoughts. And we would spend hours just spitballing stuff back and forth at each other and going, oh, my God, I just learned this. And oh, my God, I just learned this. And it right. was it was great. Right. But at some point, you kind of have to make a choice. I had decided that I was just going to keep quiet for as long as I could. But I was secretly sending messages to people who left the witnesses and just being like, hey, what's life like not as a witness? And they were like, oh, my God, it's great. Things yeah. that outside of this, outside of this organization, it's nothing like you've been taught. It's just fine. Things are fantastic. Whenever you're ready, hmm. you're welcome to come mm -hmm. on out and we'll be here. Mm -hmm. You knew strong inner conflict and very conscious awareness of what you stood to lose. Yeah. And just having to weigh, is it worth it? And the decision was made for me because my ex-wife found the messages and immediately ran to the elders. Oh, so dear. 
I could make two choices. I could either A, decide to stay as a witness and kind of prostrate myself and I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, or to just go, you know what? I said what I said and I meant what I said. I don't want to do this anymore. And I chose, I said what I said. And that was the end of that. It was like leaping out into the unknown because everything you thought you knew, I had been taught since little on that people were going to eat you alive outside of the witnesses, that you were going to be just, it was going to be miserable. No one was going to be nice to you. People were going to take advantage of you. And next thing I know, people at my job were like, they knew I had to get an apartment. So they found me an apartment. They Mm. got me silverware. They got me pots and pans, appliances, just things for my kids, toys for them. Like it was just outside the witnesses. It solidified my decision. Like, you know what? I made the right choice because I had never in the witnesses gotten that kind of attention. You know, the only time I ever got attention is when I was doing a discourse on the platform or something like that. Or Mm -hmm. when I did something, especially Jesus-y. But the rest of the time, you know, it was like, you're just like a poor kid who lives in government housing. I don't give a crap about you. Amid all that uniformity, there still was not, you say, close enough, like solidarity when people were in need. There was a couple of times when I was growing up where people would do nice things for my mom. Like my mom had a car that died and somebody gave her a car, but we lived in public housing. We ate government cheese. We barely got any assistance from people who were, you know, witnesses, but outside of the witnesses, people were generous and kind. This is what I've been looking for. People who, yeah, we have differences of opinions, but, you know, we all come together and we help each other. And that's the right way to live as opposed to trying to fight over things. And and I'm lucky enough that my kids, you know, both have decided that they're not entirely interested in the witnesses. My son mm-hmm. was very interested in them, and he was even like having anxiety attacks over thinking that I was going to die at Armageddon. Sure. And we finally had a talk about it, and I explained to him some of the stuff that's laid out in the book about the flood and about how some of this stuff isn't real. And then he was like, okay, all right. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know. Yeah, this younger generation, man, they're sharp. Right, right. And he's like, he got it. He understood it because he trusts me too. You know, he knows I'm not going to lie to him. Right. And my daughter, she's, she doesn't care. (laughs) My daughter is not interested at all Mm. in it. Mm. She's more interested in drawing cute little pictures and in talking about burps and farts. Honestly, it's an improvement over the witnesses. You've just recounted far more of your own experience than you chose to put in your book about exiting the witnesses. The book yeah. you know, really kind of reads like the work of someone who just had some questions that really bothered him, you know, and yeah. stuck in his craw and he just kept working on the questions yeah. and reading them. And like you couldn't discuss them with anyone for a long time. So they bottle up. Mm-hmm. And yeah. know, the emotional reality of that comes through in the vitality and sharpness of your of arguments in chapter after chapter. One of the reasons that I chose not to include a lot of my stories, because a lot of witness people, they grow up as kids, they grow up, you know, in the organization, they decide they don't like it, but they're trapped, and then they have to make a tough choice. And it's the same 
story over and over. It's not a unique story right. amongst people who are witnesses. <laughs> Everybody's dealing with the same thing. So me reiterating my story to in the book, I was I, I even put it in at one point and I'm like, no, this isn't what I want to talk about because I'm only interested in getting into why they're wrong. Ways that can then sit inside somebody else and grow and fester and undermine. Exactly. People need to be able to ask those questions. And if you're not able right. to ask questions, if you're kept in an environment where you're not allowed to present those questions in any sort of intellectually honest way, of course, you're going to end up stuck in this weird way of thinking. You know, that's just how it works. So being able to tell people it's okay to ask questions about anything you believe because anything you believe should withstand scrutiny. I imagine this was a hard one achievement, recognizing finally that the questioning is the important thing, taking your own stab because you're, you know, an organism in and of yourself, uh, your, your notion of truth. Right after the introduction to your book, you jump right into Noah and the flood. What made you I, want I, that to be, you know, round one of, of this bout? I wanted to write it kind of like kicking somebody off the cliff. You're starting to read this book. Okay, push. We're going. The reason why I wanted that to be one, the most important one, is because that is a very foundational belief. Because it links into so many things. They keep calling back to it. They go, look, Noah preached. And therefore, since he preached, we preach. God killed everybody. Therefore, God's going to kill everybody again. Mm. Only a few people survived who did exactly what God wanted. Oh, and see. today, only a few people are going to, you know, so kind of trying to bring it all, they bring it all together. So if you're able to say, no, these two things don't really match up. It's just a story. It's not real. Now, it kind of undermines everything mm -hmm. that's layered on top of it, all the, all the stuff that they piled on top of it. So you're saying it sort of sets the tone for the whole apocalyptic message. Yeah. The, the witnesses frequently refer to all the apocalypses that happen in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, the Red Sea where the, no, Pharaoh's army is destroyed and they, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, 587 BC, you know, that, mm -hmm. like they talk about all this stuff as they're like, look at all these apocalypses that God has allowed to happen over and over and over. What makes you think that God's not going to do another apocalypse? These apocalypses, they're just stories, man. You're fine. You're going to be just fine. Giving people confidence that it's okay that you're not going to die for asking questions because God doesn't kill people if they ask questions. I can't reflect back to you some of what the, the argumentation was that you used, but you went to some nutty places just in that chapter. It was a tour de force. Like, what was it about the sloths? Yes, sloths with little sailor outfits. That's fun. I'm keeping that, that in there. That, that's, that, one's, that one's there for me. That one's there for me. My argument there is because sloths move very slowly. And they live only in the Amazon. So how on earth would a sloth get from the Amazon to Mesopotamia in a span of two weeks? Even get if they the were. <laughs> even, yes, even if they were moving at like 
four times the speed of a normal sloth. There's no way they could cross the ocean, swim the entire length of the ocean. There's no way they could do any of this stuff. It's just impossible. I wanted to put all the different reasons that people could go, look, this entire account is BS. You don't have to worry about it. So don't worry about it. And I wanted to give people reason after reason after reason, because it's one thing to just take one thing and pinpoint it and go, this is one reason you shouldn't believe this. But when the evidence is overwhelming, if you still believe this happened, when there is overwhelming evidence to show that it didn't, then you just want it to be true because you want it to be true. Admit it. Just admit it. It just seems like there's so much doubling down on particular points of theology. And and you Mm -hmm. said something earlier about a kind of a scientistic veneer. And I I kind of see that as well. And how you're the things you're bringing up, like, what's this thing about about who gets into heaven? 144,000 people? Like, what in the world is that? The number 144,000 is twice in the Bible in Revelation. So it's actually written out 144,000. They write it out a couple, couple of different times. So a lot of religions have kind of glommed onto it, like this must mean something, this number must mean something and mm-hmm. some religions have decided that 144,000 people will this or there'll be priests or there'll be this and the way the witnesses teach it is that they teach okay 144,000 people are going to reign with God in heaven in order to be kings and priests over the earth after Armageddon and and the people who survive Armageddon are going to live on the earth and they will live in a paradise that will be run by God and the 144,000 in heaven. To be perfectly frank, Revelation was probably written by a dude who was on so many mushrooms. And yeah. they take that, they take that and go, you know, let's let's do something with this. Let's let's make something out. Let, let's let's take this number and make it into something significant when it when it isn't. It's just a number. The the actual counting of things in ancient times was rare. They didn't really do counting like one, two, three, four, five, and write those specific numbers down as often as we think. A lot of times numbers were just purely symbolic. You know, yeah. they go, well, there's there's like thousands of them. It'd be like me saying, oh yeah, there's thousands of people in my city. I don't know how many, you know, maybe 50,000. That's basically all they were doing is just spitting out a number that sounded good. But people don't know that unless they've actually done the research into their Bibles. And I happened to do that because I was devouring every book about the Bible, just Mm -hmm. any book I could get my hands on. Even some old, old ones like this one called Some Mistakes of Moses from 1890 something. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I want to say, you know, that I have respect for all religious texts to some extent, because there's a lot of religious texts that what they're doing is they're saying, hey, man, be good to each other. You know, there's some that they're just, all they're trying to do is trying to explain the ultimate question of why is there suffering? And they come to different answers as to why is there suffering? That's all they're trying Mm -hmm. to do. But to be frank, once you start looking at it as a guidepost for living, that's when it starts getting into some really crazy territory because we shouldn't be listening to 2000 year old goat herders to answer the questions that we have At today not exclusively right i mean sometimes <laughs> some of the goat herders were right but you know like not 
every goat herder, man. What about these prophecies about specific historical periods oh, in boy. 1914 and all this? <laughs> oh boy, the witnesses and a lot of evangelical religions. Look at the prophecies. There's certain things listed in the book of Daniel, in Revelation, and a lot of these evangelical religions have come to the same opinion that these are referring to former kingdoms that ruled over the earth and therefore we can trust what they have to say about future kingdoms and about how eventually god is going to kill you know the entire world the most out there one is in daniel and it's this king of the north versus the king of the south and it's all told kind of like a like a Nostradamus type prophecy hmm. where it's kind of saying, you know, that this one will desolate the holy place, but this one's arms will get cut short. Very florid language, very esoteric type of language. And the idea being people at the time would have understood exactly what they're referring to. To this day, we can still kind of pick out what they were referring to. It maps to a very specific time in history. What they're all leading to is that Rome is going to be the last king, quote unquote. And then mm. after Rome is gone, the earth will be destroyed because the hmm. fall of Rome was a very traumatic thing. It took 250 years yeah. for it to fall apart, but it was still a big deal for a lot of folks. It was the number one power. Certainly so it entered the geopolitical order yeah, such as it was. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are you familiar with the Great Awakening of the late 1800s in the religious Great Awakening? Sort of, not, not much. In the 1840s through 1870s had this huge flush, like onrush of uh, fundamentalist preachers who taught about the end of the world, who sprung mm -hmm. up all these different uh, religious groups. That's where the Mormons came out of, the Seventh-day Adventists. Jehovah's Witnesses, they started as the Bible students. They all sprung out of the same time period. And if you think about it, in our nation's history, the 1840s through mm -hmm. the 50s, it was a violent time, right. bleeding Standing Kansas. frontier and the conflict over yeah. slavery. Yes. And not only that, but some of the some of the years that happened, like um, I believe it was 1873. I could be wrong on that year, but 1873 was like this huge railroad strike that absolutely decimated. There was a mm -hmm. panic of 1873. And then like so, so everything is just going haywire. And a lot of these religious groups centered their predictions around these time periods and went, look at how much things change. Life will never be the same. Look at how everything went wrong. And then life went on. Mm -hmm. And then they went, oh, well, we were referring to another time. And then they go to 1914, because in 1914, World War I, you know, the Great War strikes up and people are going, oh man, you know, we're gonna, you know, the world will never be the same. Mm -hmm. And then the world kept going. And then they kept, so things kept happening over and over and over. And it will, it kind of takes people and shakes them a little bit and makes them go, I need to join a group that's explaining to me what's all this about. The Jehovah's Witnesses actually had a huge growth spurt 
from the 1960s through about the 1980s, which you think about the 60s, the turmoil of the 60s, civil rights movement, Kennedy assassinated, Dr. King assassinated, Malcolm X assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. assassinated, just just like Biafra, terrorist hostage thing. It felt like the world was ending. Nixon resigns, oil crisis, you know, just everything feels like it's going nuts. And the same sorts of cultural ferment that you can think of as leading to, you know, the evangelicals turning to politics and Reagan getting elected. Exactly. It, It happened for like it happened to a lot of these types of groups because a lot like that's why we see the real huge spike in evangelicalism in the way that evangelicals approach the world. A lot of times when there is turmoil in the world, people are trying to find a way to explain it. So circling back to Mm -hmm. the prophecies that we discussed in Daniel and those sort of things, people were seeing turmoil in the world and they're trying to figure out how do we explain this? What's going to happen next? And they went ahead and they came up with these prophecies of like this king is doing this and this other king is doing this and they're in eternal conflict and God's going to bring an end to this. It's once again, same old story, just endlessly retold in different, you know, with, with different characters. Right. Try, trying to map it using these biblical passages as, what is it, a Romana clef? Nice, nice turn. Oh, I like that. Romana oh clef. That's a good one. I, my second edition, I'll steal it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, does, it does seem like limited thinking. There's so many other examples of it with real and bloody consequences. I really appreciate in the book the way you proceeded really kind of patiently, maybe modestly is the right word, like saving the the thorniest and most horrifying issues around the witnesses for the later chapters of the yeah. book, you know, like the for the problem with blood, for example. Can you explain yes. what that's all about? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that blood transfusions are not allowed. And the reason for this, and it's a lot of this stuff that makes sense on its face, because the Bible says repeatedly, don't drink blood, don't eat blood. You've got to bleed animals before you eat them because you can't eat blood because blood is something that is only for God. Paul Mm -hmm. repeats it as well. So it's kind of like this is a through line throughout the Bible. They keep talking about blood, 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 blood. And then Mm -hmm. finally, they put, you know, Paul puts a little period on it. So the witnesses go, well, clearly blood is very important to God. Therefore, we shouldn't be eating blood. And, you know, if people are getting these blood transfusions, well, Mm -hmm. that's sort of like breaking the rule, too. If you accept the primacy of the Bible, that sort of makes sense. But then when you start picking it apart, you start realizing, well, it doesn't really make sense because there's other things that they allow witnesses to do with the blood. They will allow witnesses to accept certain fractions of blood for transfusion or medicinal purposes, but they won't allow them to accept blood or one of the four major components, which are platelets, white cells, red cells, and plasma. You can't this do is that. all like you... trying to square a theological circle? Yeah, you can use one of these smaller things, like albumin you can use, but you can't take platelets, which the more you think about it, then you're like, well, wait a second. In order to get a fraction of blood, that means that more people are donating blood to get the fraction. Even more people 
than if he had just taken the blood in the first place. Mm-hmm. Then whole blood. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 basically making more people break this primal rule of God's. Not to mention consigning some people to to death. Right. What they do is they extend that out, and then they go look. You're not supposed to take blood transfusions, even if your life is in danger. And then they go, if you have children and their life is in danger, you should not allow them to take blood transfusions either. And that is where one of the things I discuss in the book is that there are so many people who have died because they refuse to take blood transfusions. They, they absolutely refuse. Yeah. And children who did not understand the choice that they were making. They didn't understand why I'm not taking blood transfusions. They just know mom and dad told me I shouldn't be doing this. And this group that I am part of, this religious group I'm part of says, don't do it. So I'm not going to take blood. And I'm going to hold fast to this because I don't have any other frame of reference. Mm. Mm. And one of the things that they do, they have what are called hospital liaison committees, who are the congregation overseers. And they will go into the hospital and sit with the person who is in the hospital under the guise of saying, look, this All person, of this blood problem. Well, yeah. And, and yeah. also to be like, you know what, this person may not necessarily be all 100% there, you know, but we know they don't want blood. They've yeah. been made, they've made it very clear. Mm. And if you tell the hospital liaison committee, get out, I don't need you here. You can leave. Well, that is very suspicious. And it could be potentially grounds for getting questioned. And maybe you were being a little, you know, well, this isn't a very important thing. And it's awfully suspicious that you Mm. didn't want us there. They end up killing people because of this. And if they decide to change their viewpoint on this, well, that opens up so many lawsuits. Think of all the people who have, even if they didn't die, they maybe had to undergo unnecessary treatment. Maybe they had to go. Maybe they are hmm. now suffering from ailments that they wouldn't have had to. Hmm. It's not like you know hospitals just sort of have like a like a giant fifty-five gallon drum full of blood that they just sort of pump into everybody who walks in. You know, like you walk in, you get a cup of blood, and you 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 go to your room. You know, <laughs> they don't do that. They only use it when it is absolutely necessary children have lost their lives due to this and that's the thing that really sticks in my craw that was one of the things when 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 i you know with my children when i got divorced i said look the thing i want in this agreement is that anytime there's anything having to do with any sort of blood issue Mm. i need to be the one making the call and fortunately that was that w- that right was handed to me but mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of parents that they have to fight to tell their ch- to tell the doctors no this save my kid you know yeah. save them you know you talked about backloading a lot of this stuff in the back of the book it's because i wanted to kind of be a little lighthearted at the, at the front you know kind of yeah. like you're 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 just sort of you know okay we're just gonna kick down some of the myths some of the things and now that you understand that you're not going to be in trouble you're not going to get killed for questioning these things okay now here's the way that they treat women (laughs) you know the witnesses absolutely just make life miserable for women in general Um, and for and for children you do get into women and children yeah 
but just the business of the two witness rule in and yeah. of itself seems like enough. So there is a big case in Australia. Australia did what is called the Royal Commission on Child Abuse. What they did is they decided to investigate every religion that they could in Australia and see how every religion handles child sexual abuse. And some of them, they said, hey, you're doing a good job. You know, you're reporting this stuff. You're, you're following all mandatory reporting procedures. Some of them, they said, here are some suggestions to make things better. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, they did a huge interview where it was live streamed. They actually got one of the governing body members, who is the, one of the big mucky mucks in the, running the organization, to testify. And this is all available on YouTube. Uh, that, that if you just look up Royal right. Commission Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll be able to find it. And uh, their results actually came out today, their final report. It's a 100-page report where they kind of lay out all the facts. Do the witnesses not do a good job of protecting children from child molesters? They make it actively worse, and they refuse to take any suggestions on how to make it better. One of the ways that they make everything worse is there's a thing in the Bible where it talks about how every time that there is a, a judicial matter. So let's say that I catch Roger sleeping with my wife. Then I'm like, oh, how dare you, Roger? If I ran and told the elders, I saw Roger sleeping with my wife. And Roger goes, I didn't sleep with his wife. And my wife goes, I didn't sleep with Roger. Well, mm -hmm. I would need a second witness because that way people can't just throw accusations out willy-nilly. There's two witnesses. And on the face, it sounds fine you know it sounds like a good idea because you don't want people just throwing out accusations but then you start thinking about it and especially when it comes to certain matters imagine if we kind of did that with murder i saw somebody i saw right. that you know person right. x kill person y well there had to be another person around well it's either by uh, you could argue that we effectively have done that with with rape in the whole society exactly so. we have and even in cases where there's more than one victim of rape we, we've made it already incredibly difficult. When women accuse somebody of rape, society demands so much from them. Yeah. They not only demand just proof that the rape happened, but were you dressed provocatively? Did you do this? Did you do that? If there was somebody else who goes, yeah, I saw it, it's still very difficult to prove. You know, and even if you prove it, Brock Peters got three months in probation for raping somebody in an alley. Three months yeah. probation. Yeah. So adding a second sort of thing onto it of, well, there need to be two witnesses. It's already, we're already asking way too much of people who are victims of sexual abuse. And then when you add onto that, children. Because if there's a yeah. child who has been abused, by its very nature, another child who is being abused or who is a witness is either a is, is a victim, you know, so just adding more and more, you, you have to wait for two victims for to be able to do anything about the problem. And even when there's two victims, they still sometimes just sort of sit on their hands and go, well, it didn't really, you know, it didn't really happen. That was the hardest chapter to write i had to take many breaks in that chapter mm. because i would just be like 
you know, oh, geez, you know, oh, boy, you know, especially when you're researching information from, you know, rain and when you're learning, you know, like, like, because I have never been in this situation. So I don't know exactly how it is. But when you start researching, they have to go through so many hoops. And society just simply doesn't believe women at all, ever about anything that you add in the additional part of a child having to accuse an adult and having no one to back them up. If your parents uh, try and back you up and the elders say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. Mm -hmm. And the parents back you up, then they're booted out of the organization. Right. You know, everybody's discouraged from going, I'm sure to the police or to, you know, anything except keeping it, keeping it in family, in the organization. Exactly. And, and if you go to the, or if you go to the, um, police or the authorities or any type of authority they they have this big thing about heaping reproach upon jehovah's name that they don't want you to make god look bad so mm. you can get kicked out for making god look bad when you're all you're doing is literally saying hey that guy did something terrible the <laughs> you know? so, right. yes yes mm-hmm. so you know which that and it's funny because that concept of reproach on god's name doesn't really appear in the bible there isn't really you know it's something that all witnesses Mm -hmm. understand Mm -hmm. it's not really something that you know that that idea of oh you better not tell anybody about bad things or you know god hates you that's not in the bible right that seems more like a human control tool rather than a divine one that's sort of part and parcel to a lot of you know, especially evangelical religions, is that when you really double and triple down on this is what the Bible says, so we're going to stick to it. Because then you are, by your very nature, gulping down the camel, straining out the gnat. Because there's certain things in the Bible that they say you simply shouldn't do. You know, there's certain bugs that you're not supposed to eat, according to the Bible. But there's certain ones that you can eat. But the ones that are hopping, you can't eat. But there's some hopping ones you can eat. When you start getting really into the weeds on this stuff, it just starts becoming onerous. When you see people who are hardcore evangelical, it's that they're trying their hardest to do what they think God wants them to do. It's this maddening chase after a ghost to do what they think God wants them to while all the time, you know, either believing in their heart of hearts that they are right no matter what or being racked with self-doubt. And, yeah, and cognitive you know, dissonance, you know, yes, the phrase yeah, I have for it. It kind of whipsaws back and forth between, mm-hmm. you know, I am right and, oh, God, I'm going to die. I'm right. Oh, God, I'm going to die. It's a stressful way of living. One of the hard parts about writing any sort of introduction to the book is that I don't remember the majority of my childhood. And I didn't realize till much, much later that not remembering large swaths of your childhood is a result of trauma, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is great. You know, it's great, you know. Yeah. And this sort of upbringing is traumatic to children. Also, in the end, you speak about the more recent trauma that was thrown down upon you for exiting. You yeah. know, I, I suppose your compensation is you can get out from under the, the, the doubts, the cognitive dissonance, all of that, but uh, it comes at the cost of the word I learned from your book is disfellowshipping. Disfellowshipping, yeah. And it sounds real innocuous. 
it sounds like the, the 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 nicest little word on earth but it's it's shunning and shunning hurts ostracism hurts for them it's a feature and not a bug because they want it to hurt they want it to be that you see this person and you kind of wave at them and they look back at you and they don't they or they ignore you and you're like oh i should go back to the witnesses where when I wave at somebody that I know, they will see me and they will wave back because it hurts. They want it to hurt. They want you to feel that pain in your heart so that you understand, you know, quote unquote, what you've done. Yeah, you're either in or you're out. It's one of those things that a lot of cults do in general. You are either with us or you are against us. And if you are mm-hmm. against us, we don't even want to look at you. They don't want to admit that what they're doing hurts even though they know that it hurts, but as part of the cognitive dissonance, like, no, this is, this is loving. This is nice. Even though it's hurting somebody, they might liken it to, well, sometimes you have to give your child a shot for a vaccine, yep. even though it's going to hurt them. Right. But or it's not in the spanking yeah, room. Or, yeah, in the spanking room. Yes. <laughs> but that's not what this is. This is like sawing off their legs and leaving the wounds open and gaping just to teach them a lesson. That's what this is. And you can't do this to people, but they've been getting away with it for a very long time. And a lot of the, a lot of these beliefs are directly as a result of one or two people way back deciding to make some wacky changes because they wanted more power. And here we are, even like the Mormons, Joseph Smith started it. And then Brigham Young kind of took it in the direction that it, that it is today they do that. A lot of these you know, movements will start with one person and then the second person jumps in and goes, okay, yes, and <laughs> we'll right, add all right. this extra that's stuff. That's how it was with the witnesses too, right? Exactly. It started with Charles Taz Russell, which by the way, Taz, awesome middle name. I really wish that, I really wish that my middle name was Taz, <laughs> but alas, it is not to be. So it started with Russell and then he died in 1916, and then there was a big power struggle, and out of it came Joseph Rutherford, who was an attorney and just sort of a all-around jerk from every like really. This is this is a matter of historical record. The dude was no, he was prickly and unlikable, even by the standards of 1916. Um, and the witnesses sort of admit it too. Um, but they also are like, but he was, he was exactly what we needed at the time, because you can't speak against the leaders if you're in a cult. So, you know, and that sort of, and he's the one who made a lot of the changes that really kind of converted the witnesses from just sort of a fringe group. And then just sort of codified it into this. Yeah, we're going to do all this, you know, all this stuff to kind of, you know, really squish people into a, into a way of living. It's sad how a lot of that happens, but these are these are not things that are unique to the witnesses in a lot of ways. These these behaviors and the way that the way that the organization is run is not entirely unique. A lot of smaller cults work in a more or less decentralized structure, sometimes highly centralized, but they all have certain things in common. Researchers like Robert Lifton also were very early in, dis- in trying to decipher some of the ideas uh, behind some of the cults. And mm. then obviously- Right, was Steve he Hathaway. the one who, uh, 
who popularized the phrase cognitive dissonance? I don't know enough to argue that point. <laughs> then you've got like Steve Hassan, who actually was part of the Moonies. Mm-hmm. And when he left the Moonies, he was like, well, how in the heck did I end up in that? And for a lot of folks, they feel like they were in a bad dream. Then when they come out of it, then they're trying to ask questions of themselves and trying to piece it together. Witnesses have some terminology that they'll use amongst themselves, uh, ex-witnesses, I should say. Mm -hmm. But there are some people who are physically out, but mentally in. P-O-M-I, physically out, that you've been Hmm. kicked out of the witnesses for being being a failure, but you're still mentally still trapped in there. Right. Um, There's some that are physically in and mentally in, so P-I-M-I, and then physically in, but mentally out. So Mm -hmm. you might be like, look, I'm stuck in here. You know, I am stuck in here because my family is in here. I love my wife and I can't leave the organization or there's some reason that I can't get out of here. But I am mentally out. Being at the meetings makes me sick. That seemed like a group you were, you know, somewhat thinking of as a prospective audience for what you what you wrote. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of folks who are, you know, physically in, mentally out. And it's very hard for them to find each other because it's that sort of North Korea. If I talk to this person, are they going to rat me out? I remember one time after me and my exit buddy were starting to talk, suddenly my, you know, my wife got a phone call. I was like, is, is Lee leaving the witnesses? And right away, I was talking to my exit buddy and I'm like, dude, did you rat me out? And he's like, no, no, I didn't. Did you rat me out? Because somebody else was talking to me. And we were like panicking and kind of like pointing the finger a little bit like, am I sure I can trust you? And then we realized that it was just because we both happened to be talking to each other. And they knew that we were kind of starting to question things that they were getting curious as to what was going on and if we were leaving. And then we're like, okay, okay, neither of us is ratting the other out. Okay, I trust you, dude. We're going to be fine. That's what happens when people try and seek each other out inside the organization. Because there's just no way of being able to tell the truth to somebody else without fear of being booted out or being uh, ratted out. It's it's very, very scary. Right. The hope is that that you can introduce some fresh air and create further cognitive dissonance and help people move toward that uh, that action. And to understand that there are support groups online. Um, there's lots of, that's been one of the big things uh, that helped a lot of people, including myself. There is a, a gentleman by the name of Lloyd Evans, who has been instrumental in a lot of people leaving the Jehovah's No relation, Witnesses. I imagine. No, no. You know, he's, he's, he's British. So, and he's, and yeah, so I I don't know. And, and he's probably better looking than me anyways. He's been instrumental in a lot of folks, uh, leaving the witnesses. There's, you know, other folks out there, uh, who have been doing some phenomenal work. Um, I can't remember all their names, but they've been doing the, they've been doing a, a great job. The way I think about it sometimes when you're trying to keep somebody in this tight little cage and they they want to get out of it because the human soul yearns to break free so you've got to like weld every little joint of this tiny little cage and you've got to double check them and triple check them and you've got to like check every last bit of this constantly because at any second it will break free 
And all it takes is for one person just to sort of walk up and bend a piece of it and the whole thing falls apart. You know, that's what happens when, when you when you try and hold somebody into a certain way of belief. You can't hold them there forever. Eventually, something breaks free. What some people try and do is they try and grab them, grab somebody and yank them out of the organization. They try and say, I want to help my mom or my dad or my uncle or my brother or my sister. I want to drag them out of the witnesses. And you can't do that. It doesn't work because yeah. we're just not built that way. If we believe something, it's really hard to break out of that. If you believe something, it is so hard to break out of that way of thinking. And one of the terrible quirks of human brains is that if you try and argue a point with someone and you present them <laughs> evidence that shows that they're wrong, our stupid little pieces of wet bacon, electric <laughs> bacon that's in our head, uh, decides that I'm going to double and triple down on the idea. So, yep. you know, it's one of those awful quirks of having having a human brain but it's something that happens to us so you can't yes, motivated reasoning is the phrase i've heard about it yes yes when we look back at for example some of the political cults that have sprung up right how do you deprogram all these people who have fallen into this sort of uh this cage of of weird belief how do you do it and the problem is is that you can't you have yeah, to wait for yeah. them to get out and then some of them understand that some of them never will. Right. And you're going to have to no, be okay with like that. The, the, the strategy that you were following, uh, attempting to sow seeds that may germinate into useful doubt and mm -hmm. questioning. You know? And sometimes those seeds land on concrete yeah. and there's nothing that can happen. <laughs> It's weird that as a society, we're going to have to be okay with that. We're going to have to understand not just that that happens, but also that you can't give those people oxygen mm. because the more yeah. oxygen you give them, the more airtime, the more time they have to kind of tell everybody about these bizarre beliefs, then the more people start going, hmm, that seems like an interesting point of view. Let me look at that a little bit further. It's going to be necessary for us to be more educated on how these yeah, cults work. So. And, you know, and I think the conversation that we've been having has really made clear that cult behavior is real, that it's, it's widespread and mm -hmm. takes different forms. And that in general, learning about one can help you recognize others. Yeah. And one of the things to understand, too, is so I've explained some of the beliefs that Jehovah's Witnesses have that are wacky, like the king of the north, king of the south, there's these wild beasts that are fighting and the, the 144,000 going to heaven and these beliefs that you'd be like, if somebody just on the street walked up to you and said, hey, did you know that 144,000 people are going to heaven? You'd be like, get, get out of here. But what they're doing- That wasn't part of your doorstep rap. <laughs> correct. But what they do is they present people with something else they don't walk in there with those wacky beliefs they walk in there with hope they walk in there with isn't it terrible that life is this way don't you wish that there was something better well there's a promise of something yeah. better now we're talking and then, advertising and that's what they're doing that's and even groups like q 
do the same thing. They go, boy, your life is hard, isn't it? You know, there's a thing that's going to make your life all better when you understand mm. that this is all a front. And now you've got people's attention and you're sort of leading them down the the primrose path until suddenly now they're believing that, you know, that there's lizard people on the moon. It's a pipeline to people believing really messed up stuff. So there has to be a pipeline as well for people to go the other way, a pipeline for people to go, hey, I need to clear my head. I need to think about things rationally, mm -hmm. a way to kind of lead people away from those. And that's why your know, services like what you guys are doing here. It's a fantastic idea. Keep sort of spreading the word about why it's important to use your head. Like I talked about how our brains are just a three pounds of electric bacon. Well, it's up there. Use it, man. It's there for you to try and think carefully and understand that, yeah, you're going to be wrong sometimes. And that's okay. It is okay to be wrong. You know, when you were a child, you were wrong about so many things. You were wrong about so many things. You thought that if you stepped on a crack, you would break your mother's back. You thought that the moon was made out of cheese. And now as you are older, you realize, boy, I sure believe some wacky stuff. Well, growth doesn't stop just because you've stopped physically growing. If you're stopped mentally growing, you're just going to end up regressing into the, the, this world of, I just listen for people to tell me what to do. And the rest of the time, I, I just sort of sit around and, you know, watch Blue Bloods. There's, there's so much more to it than that. And a lot of that stems from, you know, the Maslow's pyramid of needs and right. but, Maslow's one of the humanists. Yeah, exactly. That the, the idea that if people don't have their basic needs met, they're not going to question other things too hard. That's why we end up in situations where people just want somebody else to do the thinking for them because they don't have some other things met. So they're like, look, you tell me what I should believe. And then I will take your word for it. The rest of the time, I'm just going to be over here desperately trying to stay alive. There's so many more things that we need to be doing for people if we're going to ever try and get folks out of some of these strange mindsets that they're all, that they're kind of stuck in. You do say some sweet things at the end of the book, sort of some words of advice from someone who's been there, if aimed at people on the precipice of exiting. Yeah. You mentioned uh, before we started that, you know, there's a couple of paragraphs that you liked in my book. And I'm just going to kind of read those. People who are Douglas Adams fans might notice a little bit that I stole from him, but I don't think people will grudge me too much for it. Well, 144,000. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I want you to think about the universe. Space is big. I mean, really, really big. For example, the great red spot on the planet Jupiter is so big that you can fit three Earths in it. That's huge. The sizes of the other planets in our solar system boggle the mind, and the sun is even more impossible to comprehend. Here we are, 93 million miles away from it, and it's still large enough that we can see it in the sky and feel its warmth. Even taking into account the enormity of our sun and the planets, our solar system is still about 99% empty space. Yet, the sun is only a medium-sized star. I want you to think about how many stars there are just in our galaxy. There are hundreds of billions of stars, planets, and moons surrounded by a vast, inky blackness. In the spaces between the galaxies, we find nothing but scattered icy planets adrift forever in the void. 
here and there we find dim stars that have been cast out from their galaxies and continue in search of a new home. The enormity of these empty spaces between these galaxies are impossible to comprehend in our limited brains. It's even more staggering when you consider that this is only a small part of reality. In our observable universe, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies strung together like grand filaments with even more unfathomable empty space between them. Trillions and trillions of stars, planets, and moons doing a cosmic dance into infinity. We tend to place value on things based on their rarity. For example, gold is worth more than plastic. Plastic is common, gold is not. Think of the enormity of the cosmos and all the empty space it contains, and then consider the fact that on this rock, this tiny speck of dust in this backwater strand of the universe is the rarest jewel of all, you. You exist nowhere else in the universe. This planet is the only place we currently know of that hosts life, and the only humans in existence are right here. Your unique collection of consciousness, the unique arrangement of your atoms, your thoughts, hopes, and dreams can be found nowhere else. You are rarer than the most precious jewel, more special than the scarcest ore. You have intrinsic value. Groups like the Witnesses and others want to take that value away from you. They want you to think that you're only important because you belong to their group. That is false. You're important because you're here. You matter because you exist. Cherish that gift, the gift of life. Treasure it because you only get it once. And once it's gone, it's gone. That's H.J. Evans. The book is Leaving the Tower. Why the Jehovah's Witnesses are Wrong About Just About Everything, published in 2021. Thank you, man. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. it was, it's been fun. And thank you for watching to the end. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel or to our uh, RSS or Spotify audio and click that bell and let people know about when humanists attack and keep on questioning.